Welcome. Hello. <laughs> Today we uh, have for our podcast uh, Dr. Karima Sajadi. Karima is our Director of Medical Student Education. And Karima approached me and said, I would like to review the cardinal presentations uh, for our medical students and our residents, our interns especially, but definitely our med students who are in the pathway trying to become EM physicians. And I said, that sounds great. How many cardinal presentations are there? And she said, 34. (laughs) (laughs) All 34 chapters. 34 chapters. So uh, this is going to be a bit of a journey where we're through Rosen, which is very important because um, as uh, our friends at Foamcast like to say, Rosen Alley is the, uh, you know, sort of gold standard that you're held to in terms of boards and whatnot. That's right. And so Karima and I today are going to talk about abdominal pain uh, as the first in a series of these cardinal presentations. So you ready to go? I am ready to go. All right. It's a pleasure. So let's start with the concept of abdominal pain and why abdominal pain is such a challenge uh, to evaluate, especially when you're you know, new to emergency medicine or you're starting out in emergency medicine. Well, let me first um, say that 10% of all ED visits are for abdominal pain. So that kind of gives you... A lot of people come (laughs) complaining of abdominal pain. Yeah. Yeah. And it does present challenges to both the patients and the doctors because patients usually have a pretty hard time conveying the nature and quality of abdominal pain. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very subjective, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right. Then physical findings can be very varying and misleading. Location and severity changes over time. Sometimes benign symptoms progress to life-threatening conditions, right. and vice versa. Sometimes pretty severe symptoms can be fairly benign, right. like gas pain. Right, right. Um, and even after the ED workup, the diagnosis may never be found. Right. So that's frustrating. It when is. You have a very uh, the possibilities of severity are endless. And at the end of the day, you have nothing to show for it. So can you break down the workup of abdominal pain uh, and take an approach, let's say, based on the epidemiology? Is there a way to approach it based on who gets abdominal pain and why? Yeah, of course. Well, everybody gets abdominal pain. Okay. If you have an abdomen, you're going to have an (laughs) abdominal pain. All right. So, and of course, the usual culprits are, um, you know, GI, gastrointestinal organs, pelvic organs, and GU, genitourinal. Okay. So, um, in terms of epidemiology of the patients, um, there are several categories that I think deserve a special attention. Um, Elderly. 65 plus, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, they're more likely to have life-threatening condi- uh, conditions. And, um, you know, you always have to think of ruptured triple A, mesenteric ischemia, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we would throw to GI, GU, and pelvic, we throw vascular in there. Exactly. And we will talk about it later. Right. So elderly. And elderly. All right. Then immunocompromised. Obviously, okay. now it's like more and more of them. It's Obviously, people with HIV AIDS, mm-hmm. also people with uncontrolled diabetes, chronic liver disease, your sure. chemotherapy patients, sure, sure. and immunosuppressive drugs, you know. So these people will tend to have atypical presentations of diseases. For example, lack of fever. The labs will be unreliable. Okay. They won't have WBC elevation. And if infection is considered, then obviously your differential diagnosis is going to be much broader. I got it. And then the third um, category that deserves special attention is women of reproductive age. Okay. They have pelvic organs 
and you know that they, they can be painful <laughs> yeah and they should be considered in addition to um the abdominal organs so in the pregnancy itself you know presents the its own differential diagnosis and also the pregnancy displaces normal abdominal contents so mm-hmm. your typical you know relationships between organs are disrupted in many ways okay so you can kind of think of it in terms of gi gu uh, vascular and then subdivide that into the elderly immunocompromised and reproductive age women what about the pathophys of some of those conditions that are helpful in making that diagnosis? Sure. And like, as I mentioned, the GI and GU organs are the main source. Okay. Um, but also, we have to consider extra abdominal locations. And we're talking thoracic, you know, your lungs and heart. Oh, sure. So MIs, pneumonias, PE, pericarditis, they can totally present like an abdominal pain. Mm -hmm. So GU, you know, your testicular torsion orchitis can present as abdominal pain. Okay. Then of course there is abdominal wall covering the abdominal organs. So the muscle spasms, the herpes zoster. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, the infections, you know, strep pharyngitis, mononucleosis, and then of course systemic symptoms, DKA, AKA, uremia. Porphyria, SLE, they all can present as an right, abdominal pain. Right. And everybody's, your favorite everybody's one, CPC is porphyria, by the right. way. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and of course, your favorite one is the tox- toxicology. Thank yeah. you for putting that in there. <laughs> <laughs> Methanol poisoning, heavy metal toxicities, sure. the spider bites, yeah. the black widow spider. Abdominal pain, neuropathy, CNS changes is sort right. of a toxidrome for exactly. heavy metal. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know. So how does the nature of the pin, uh, so you're given great ideas on how to sort of break it down and look at the organs based on epidemiology. Let's talk about the nature of the pain. And this is one of my favorite ways when I teach at the bedside about abdominal pain is to break out um, abdominal pain. What are, the, what are the different types of pain that there are? So, you know, there's three category and um, it's visceral, somatic, and referred. So mm-hmm. visceral pain. This is a board's question too, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Visceral right. somatic referred. Okay. So visceral pain comes from visceral peritoneum duh, right. that actually surrounds the organs. Right. So any distension of the hollow organs by fluid or gas, you know, and you can think of like bowels right away. Capsular stretching of organs by like edema or cysts or blood, you know, that's what will cause the visceral abdominal pain. So it's usually very poorly characterized, Mm. just due to the visceral peritoneum. It's difficult to localize. It's usually intermittent, crampy, and colicky. Mm -hmm. So colicky types of pain are visceral. Okay. Exactly. And when you think of a location, you kind of have to remember the embryonic segments of that. Okay. They generally do follow that embryonic pattern, like the foregut, foregut, midgut, and hindgut. Like foregut, it's like stomach, duodenum, liver, and pancreas. So that would be obviously located in the upper stomach. So the gotcha. midgut, okay. yeah, it's like small bowel, proximal colon, and appendix. That would be your mid slash peri-umbilical abdominal okay. pain. And the hindgut, the distal colon, and the GU tract, that would be your lower abdominal pain. And the classic example of that would be appendicitis, right? It starts like this. Starts as visceral. Visceral, and then gets localized. And that Becomes brings us... Somatic. Exactly. Which is the other type. to the second category, right. Somatic pain. So renal colic, visceral pain. Yeah. Biliary colic. 
visceral pain. Exactly. Gas. Gas. Visceral pain. (laughs) So it could be gas, could be a kidney stone. Yep. All right. So the somatic pain, it's actually of irritation of parietal peritoneum. Okay. So, and then sensation there is conducted by peripheral nerves. And so that's why it's much better localized. So it's very it's very intense usually, right. and it's constant. Okay. And generally, it follows the topographical anatomy of the abdomen. Then you can always picture your belly divided into four quadrants, and okay. whatever the organs project there, like that's usually where the pain is coming from. So it's a little bit easier for the physician and the patient mm. to, to point out. One of the board review uh, points we uh, have gone over with our residents is that the thing that increases the likelihood ratio most of appendicitis is pain in the right lower quadrant more than the white count and the fever what have you so that's points to the importance of understanding the somatic nature of the of the whole thing that is right all right so visceral somatic and and our favorite is referred referred. yeah it's when (laughs) the pain is felt at the distance from its source and the distance could be pretty considerable And that's all because afferent nerve fibers from many organs, they when they enter through the spinal, they enter the spinal cord through mm. the nerve roots. They actually carry those pain fibers from other locations, and that's why it's so confusing. Mm. So the classic example would be if you have a belly full of blood that irritates the diaphragm, uh-huh. and you come with the left shoulder pain. There you right, go. There okay. You go. So referred yeah, outward from out. the abdomen. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, a neuropathy or radiculopathy in the thoracic region might refer the pain toward the abdomen. Exactly. Right? Okay. So, and obviously, um, yeah, we're done with the types of pain, right? Well, the uh, one other thing that I would throw out there mm-hmm. would be OBGYN. I, I know this is not out of Rosen. This is out of Rich Hamilton's experience in brain, but those pains are typically cyclical. Yes. Right? They come and go in cycles or patterns, especially if the pattern is over many months. So I always throw that in there as my additional little auxiliary uh, type of abdominal pain. Yeah, and it's actually right before the statement I was going to make that we're not going to discuss we're not doing OBGYN, OBGYN problems Okay, great. that's a whole separate chapter. Yeah, that can be very complicated. Yeah. Okay, so we have the types, visceral, somatic, and referred. And uh, what's the diagnostic approach? What are we, what are we going to, how are we going to start breaking this down? Right, so when we're thinking about how we're approaching the diagnosis, we should always remember ER docs are doers, not thinkers. <laughs> so before you Hold on, even... I fashion myself <laughs> a bit of a thinker. <laughs> yeah, it's like before you pull out your huge differential and sure. start thinking, you know, like you start, you better start doing things. And what should okay, you good. start doing? You know, you should really focus on early stabilization. You know, history and physical. Okay. You know, and then, you know, get whatever ancillary testing you need to order to help you. So, classically, the differential diagnosis would be divided into two large groups. Okay. One is intra-abdominal pelvic, and the other one is extra-abdominal pelvic. So, intra-abdominal pelvic, we're talking about abdominal cavity, retroperitoneal cavity, and the pelvic cavity. Okay. And your extra-abdominal pelvic, it's your MI, pneumonia, DKA, talk stuff, whatever we talked before. Okay. So, um, extra-abdominal can be referred but also can be actually real abdominal pain, tox being a good example, even though it is, we consider it an extra abdominal cause. Or another good example, inferior wall MI. Inferior wall MI. sits on the diaphragm. Right, epigastric pain, exactly. Okay, so that's an extra abdominal cause, but um, uh, differentiating that from an intra-abdominal 
uh, approach. Okay, great. So we, um, in fact, Mike Passerstein and I just talked at our in our podcast on a three-minute emergency medicine student presentation about why uh, in identifying and excluding life-threatening conditions are is such an important attribute of a good EM physician. Med students who are going into EM um, need to uh, start internalizing that approach as part of their uh, career early on. And the abdominal cavity is full of potential catastrophes, right? Oh, yes. So when you have that, you pick up a chart, or I guess we click on a chart. We don't pick up charts anymore, but we click on a chart and it's abdominal pain. We think this is either going to be a whole lot of nothing or a, you know, crazy, crazy difficult exactly. patient to deal with. So what are the what are those catastrophes? In other words, if I'm a med student starting out and I want to show Dr. Sajadi, the director of medical student education, <laughs> that I know my stuff. What are some top things I'm going to be thinking about um, yeah. in terms of belly pain? And that's a very good question because unlike in internal medicine, like if you don't come up with a huge differential diagnosis, you're considered like, you know, not very good. <laughs> you know, here it's like your job is a little easier because there's not that many life-threatening catastrophes you should be thinking about. Okay. So, and these are ruptured ectopic pregnancy. All right. Ruptured or leaking aortic aneurysm. Sure. Mesenteric ischemia. Right. Intestinal obstruction perforated viscous, acute pancreatitis. Okay, so ruptured ectopic, right. Uh, you know, triple A, uh, bowel ischemia, mm -hmm. uh, intestinal obstruction, perf viscous, which has a very interesting pain cycle, and acute pancreatitis. Okay, so That's right. I'm a med student. I am writing that on an index card and sticking it in my pocket, and every time I present a belly pain, I'm going to be like, I thought of these six things. You better. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the rapid approach uh, to that chief complaint? I, I, I have those six things in mind. Give us a rapid approach to breaking that down. Right. So triage is probably the most important first critical step because most patients with abdominal pain, they don't really have hemodynamic instability. Okay, sure, yeah. So that's why it's really important to have a high index of suspicion, especially if they're elderly or immunocompromised, as we talked about. Okay. So, but those who are physiologically compromised, that is having abnormal vital signs or having change in mental status, they should be immediately brought to the treatment room. Okay. And the resuscitation initiated. That is your basic ABCs, IV access. Okay. Like start treating. So I have these ca catastrophes I'm worried about. And the first thing I should look at is to basically say, right, is this patient really ill? Exactly. What's my time frame? What is my threshold for action based on the severity that the patient is complaining, uh, uh, presenting with? All right. right. Good. It's like, like that it. don't think, do. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and like you have to realize, right, the sepsis or profound volume loss from even severe vomiting and di diarrhea can lead to shock. Sure, so sure. like just start your resuscitation. Right. Um, extreme conditions such as ruptured AAA, massive GI bleed, ruptured ectopic pregnancy, ruptured spleen, hemorrhagic pancreatitis, they all may necessitate blood products or blood replacement. So you have to think of like type and screen, type and cross, like is there a massive transfusion protocol available? Okay. So this should be like popping up in your head right, immediately. Right. So, and then nowadays the bedside ultrasound is so readily available and most of our young doctors, like it's actually, I think, extension of their hand and yes. brain. So, right. you know, use it. So, and it's very useful. You can quickly look for free fluid or blood in the belly, volume status, presence of aortic pathology. Uh -huh. So, and it's very quick and it's 
cheap, right? It's readily sure. available. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have to think that many life-threatening conditions are the ones that you are not going to be able to fix. You will need a surgical or OBGYN consultation. So start thinking about the possibility of letting them know, letting them know getting them involved right away. Okay, so I, I have a situation where I am uh, ready to go, uh, and uh, I'm looking at the chart. I'm looking at vital signs. I got certain catastrophes in my head that I'm worried about. What are the questions I need to start asking? Yeah, there's a lot of questions that are considered very high yield. And of course, the first one is how old are you? You know, and we talked about it, you know. Right. <laughs> advanced age means advanced risk, increased risk. And then the question, which came first, pain or vomiting, actually is pretty high yield because pain first is actually worse mm-hmm. in many cases because it's more likely to be caused by surgical disease. The question how long you had this pain is also important because, you know, the longer you had it, the more reassuring it is. Sure. Like if it hasn't killed you in a week, like, <laughs> you know, again, never right. say never in medicine, right, but generally. Right, right, right. So um, have you ever had abdominal surgery? Why is it important? We all know adhesions from previous surgery can cause bowel obstruction. Mm-hmm. Always keep that in mind. Is the pain constant or intermittent? Again, constant pain is worse. Mm-hmm. Again, logically, you right. know, if something just lets you go. Right, right. <laughs> if it spontaneously improves, it's exactly. probably so less likely to be a malignant source of pain, right? Yep. Have you had this before? No My pri- favorite question. Yeah, no prior episode yeah. is worse. <laughs> or something like this, you know, a lot of patients try to emphasize how sick they are at the moment. And you say, have you ever had this before? They say, no, no, no. And you say, well, I just saw you had four visits for abdominal pain. Well, it was right. like this, but not That's as bad. Okay, well, classic. tell me about those. Yeah, the other questions like, do you have any history of cancer, diverticulosis, sure. pancreatitis, kidney failure, gallstones? Right. Like they're all suggestive for more serious disease going on. Mm-hmm. And you have to think of the complications of those disease. Sure. And do you have HIV? Right. Yeah, million-dollar questions, right, you sure. know, because then immediately you have to start considering occult infections, drug-related, pancreatitis. Uh-huh, yeah, sometimes stuff. overlooked, yeah. Yeah. How much alcohol do you drink per day? I Dub- stopped then even, double it. Yeah, then double I it. stopped <laughs> even asking, do you drink alcohol? I go straight for how much. And yes, exactly, you double, triple it in your mind, because then obviously you consider pancreatitis, hepatitis, sure. cirrhosis, Borhaves, Mallory-Weiss, right. AKA, GI right. bleed, tons of stuff. Sure. Are you pregnant or could be pregnant, mm-hmm. right? So right. every female of reproductive age is pregnant until proven otherwise. Exactly. And exactly. every pregnant female has ruptured ectopic right. until, until proven, proven otherwise. otherwise. Right. Yeah. And um, the question, did the pain start centrally or migrated to right lower quadrant? That's very specific for appendicitis, obviously. Classic story. Do you have a history of vascular or heart disease, hypertension, AFib? That should kind of kick you into the mesenteric ischemia thinking. Mm -hmm. And are you taking any antibiotics or steroids? Because you have to consider that these drugs may mask the infection. So these are the high yield questions that, you know, you should think of. Yeah, so those are a lot of questions. Uh, Let's look at them in terms of sort of categorize them. So. we have epidemiology questions, right, mm-hmm. uh, that we touched on before. We have the nature of the pain questions. I think that's very important. We have social history questions, which right. are very important. Uh, and uh, the pregnancy question, which could not be more <laughs> important. And then a past medical history. So 
I think then as a student, you're basically starting to say to yourself, I have to look at my, not only just my review assistance, but my pain history and how the PMH and social history contribute to my understanding Medication. of, uh, yeah, and, and whatnot. So um, and it's before, easy to focus on the pain, duration, and whatnot, right. but getting all that thorough. Many students, and we touched on this in podcasts before, many students try to emulate third-year residents or attendings who seem to have a very focused approach, but they don't realize the certain thoroughness that needs to happen before right. you can start they focusing. They don't see how the corners have been cut. Exactly. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, just one more thing I wanted to throw out there. You know, we're in America. We have people that are here from all over the world. Sure, yeah. So the language and cultural differences, the approach to, to the, you know, it's so tremendously impactful in your history and physical. Right. So, you know, of course, having like a professional interpreter is, is a must. Yes, it is. You cannot get the history from the teenager child that has accompanied the the patient to yeah, the ED. Yeah, and I have so many stories that yeah, <laughs> right. I'm going to start here. Yeah. So, you know, this is something um, to consider. Also, certain cultures tend to look, you know, um, at their diseases like a more fatalistic way. Mm. And, like, they can fool you. They can be so stoic and mm. look so, even smile and bow to you and mm -hmm. then crash in front of mm -hmm, you and mm -hmm. I had that happen multiple oh, wow. times yeah. yeah so it's very important to consider so the that. cultural basis of the pain not only is the language better but the cultural basis of the pain and how it's perceived and how exactly. it's communicated and and also like when they have that pain for a while certain cultures are there like kind of well if God wants me to have that that's what I will have they don't seek the I see they don't seek the medical treatment until right. it's very, very late. And right, right. by the time they, they get to you, they're like at their wit's end. Right, and like right. They just crash. Right, right. So very mm. important. Wow. No wonder nobody wants to pick up the abdominal pain chart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a tough one. All right. So let's talk about time course, though. We talked about past medical history, social, epidemiologic stuff. We're hitting a lot of things. Time course is pretty darn important with abdominal pain. Oh yeah, so the onset, the onset, onset, onset. Abrupt pain is indicative of a more serious cause. So okay. You have to elicit that. Although you like, again, never say never in medicine, delayed mm -hmm. presentation may also represent the surgical condition. Okay. So the surgical causes of abdominal pain are more likely to start with pain and then other symptoms would come on secondarily. Okay, so surgical pain, or, or surgical causes of abdominal pain, Pain first. And then nausea, nausea vomiting, vomiting, fever, what whatever. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, great. That's a pretty much an axiom in medicine. Yeah. Although elderly. <laughs> except, when it, except when it doesn't apply. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> elderly can present very atypically. And sometimes an elderly pain can be absent entirely. Right. So that's, that's you know, makes to make your life easier. Right, just to make your life more right. difficult. Right. So then localization and pain migration is very important. You know, diffuse pain is generally non-surgical. So when they say like, oh, it hurts everywhere, everywhere, like you kind of feel a little more reassured, you know. Um, but also it, it may represent early visceral components. So, you know, just look at your patient. Then gotcha. character of the pain. Colicky pain is frequently associated with hollow viscous distension. So keep that in mind. Right, renal, biliary. Right. right. 
And then when I come to severity and the description of the pain, like, you know, um, I also, I always kind of like, oh, God, because it's most subjective aspect of mm -hmm, the history. Sure. And, um, you know, just few classic descriptions are probably helpful, like diffuse, severe colicky pain. You should think of bowel obstruction when, like, the typical pain out of proportion to exam. Poop. <laughs> Mesenteric <laughs> ischemia. Right. Epigastric pain radiating to the mid-back. Think of pancreatitis sure. or perforating ulcer. Right, going to the uh, uh, posterior there, sure. Yep. Left shoulder pain or radiation to, of pain to left shoulder. Again, think of spleen, diaphragmatic mm -hmm. irritation, sure. free intraperitoneal um, fluid. And then um, abdominal pain and syncope, you know. That's, Always scary. Yeah. Perforated gastric or duodenal ulcer, ruptured AAA, ruptured ectopic pregnancy. So, but they're, it, they're in the top six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but again, the severity, you know, that's why I never, like, I, I actually don't like using the pain scale because, like, how many times you get, like, oh, I have 20 out of 10 right. and they're eating a burger. Yeah, the pain scale, funny phenomenon. I mean, the studies show that people who say their pain is 10 or use a term like 11 or 12 on a 1 to 10 scale are, shall we say, trying to. Uh, manipulate your impression exactly. of them in some way, shape, or form. We won't say they're narcotic-seeking or what have you, but they're trying to make a point to you exactly. about their pain. They're not really using the scale. Right. And um, just in my sort of history of being in attending um, for a while, you know, usually people who are laying there afraid to move and afraid to say anything, like these are the ones that you're scared. Sure, sure, yeah. They're having right. peritonitis. Yeah, exactly. Holding the, the sides right. of the stretcher. So yeah. judge, it, judge it for whatever it's worth, you know, and like use your best clinical judgment. So um, also their past medical history and medication history, as we mentioned, can significantly aid in your diagnosis. Okay. Like your classic example would be like, yeah, I was taking a lot of Motrin and now having like a GI bleed. Right. Bleed. So, and then signs. Signs, what do you pay attention to? Of course, mm. vital signs. Right. They are vital right. for a reason. Right, right, right. So if they're tachycardic, hypotensive, if they have high fever or they're hypothermic, you know, um, you know, this is something that you, you you should really pay attention to. Yeah, well, we used to do, we used to, we don't do SIRS anymore. Now we're on SOFA, but hypothermia, right? That right. was, a, used to be, we exactly. used to give that more importance than we do now. I still feel that's important it is so also remember that they also can be misleading right. especially again if they're elderly or immunocompromised they okay. may not be able to mount a mm -hmm. fever and then meds can affect their vital signs your classic example is beta blockers and tachycardia right. then abdominal exam that is the single most important thing that you do in evaluating the abdominal pain it must be thorough okay. it is very high yield and it's helping you not just to diagnose it, but also selecting the imaging modality. And this is something that, uh, you know, is my personal pet peeve that, you know, you Poor can't do it in the exam. hallway, you can't do it with the patient sitting, you can't do it like with their jacket on. Like, right. It has to be done properly. Jabs, just a couple of jabs through the jacket. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like when you're just stroking their belly, you know, yeah. that's not abdominal exam. Right, so like, right. you know, and I make it a point. So when I do a bedside teaching, I always say like, push, push hard. You know, it's mm. amazing how much pushing you can do without inflicting any pain. Right. 
So, you know, yeah, that's and like a Laying whole... flat is another big one. We, oh, my gosh, yeah. We have so many patients are, you know, for comfort, and they're propped up a bit or whatnot. Exactly. And, um, you know, you're, you, you, you take a flat, you know, abdomen uh, and prop them up, and suddenly the difference between the rib, the liver margin, and the appendix is reduced yeah, by half, right? Exactly. <laughs> you get, like, a third of their belly surface. Exactly. So the next thing is, like, I want to talk about a rectal exam. You know, it used to be, like, they taught us in surgery, right? The only contraindications to rectal exam is no rectum or no <laughs> finger. Right. Well, uh, you know, studies have shown that that's not true. Right. It's actually mainly useful just for hemocolloid blood testing. Mm-hmm. And also if you're looking for fistulas, fissures, or hemorrhoids, or right. like stool impaction. Right. But otherwise, it has very limited use in evaluating abdominal pain. Right. So now, Especially gonna, if you do a thorough history, you're getting right. things like the NSAID or use, exam. the aspirin use, and you're eliminating the possibilities of GI bleed or whatnot, or putting them low. Right, everybody getting a digital rectal just because yeah, of abdominal pain. That's not. That's no longer not so. necessary. An right. official excuse. Yes, hooray. <laughs> <laughs> so then, pelvic exam. Of course, yeah. every female with abdominal pain, you know, you should heavily consider um, pelvic exam. Do you feel that the patient can judge whether their pain is non-pelvic? In other words, if a patient says, "Yeah, no, absolutely, they not. cannot." No. Yeah. And as a woman, <laughs> as a woman who special had, expertise, yeah, three kids, you know, and all kinds of surgical pathology as well. So I can tell no, there right. Is, so um, the so so the the no the patient says it's not a, a pelvic pain. You're like, well, I'm yeah. sure you feel that way. I want to be thorough. You know, let's let's make sure we do a pelvic. Incident. I mean, unless it's an epigastrium and like your history and everything else kind of sure, falls right. together, like yeah, like, fine. This is my pancreatitis pain. Right? Exactly. Okay. Especially the new abdominal pain patient. And Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then urogenital exam. Sure. This is something that I also um, like to emphasize to my medical students and residents. Any male with abdominal pain, it is a mandatory thing to do um, like with a boy's exam. Exactly and right. Multiple reasons for that. You know, we talked about like referred pain, also like prostatitis, arcitis, epididymitis. They sometimes present just as an abdominal pain. Inguinal hurt. Yep. Torsions. But also I want to mention that many patients in triage and even like to female doctors, they're sort of ashamed right. sometimes to admit that they actually don't have abdominal pain, but they have right. a testicular pain right, or right. penile pain. Sure. So it's actually your chance to, to make yeah. a correct diagnosis. Yeah. So it especially is true, part of your abdominal yeah, exam. Especially true in teenagers, children, infants. If you have a, if a child is displaying colic, and you're not yeah. doing a urogenital exam, you're absolutely going to miss a diagnosis. Yep. So that's like usually my next question, like when they present to me, I'm like, what did the boys exam show? Mm-hmm. Get the patient naked. Exactly. <laughs> so, and then we should probably talk about ancillary testing yeah, very so, briefly. So you do, you've done a very thorough history, a history of physical, you've, you looked at the life threats, you looked at the vital signs, you did a little, as you say, triage to see if there's somebody you need to act fast on, and you've done your exam. And you step up to the computer and you start ordering tests. Ordering tests. Right. So I have to say that probably urinalysis and pregnancy tests is like the most important right. <laughs> workup that you should do in exactly the Exactly right. 
So CBC, unfortunately, is very seldom contributory. Amazing so how true that is. Uh, yeah, and then like your <laughs> like you know surgical residents, like you know what do the CBC show like you know makes me crazy. Well, that's where um, likelihood ratios help people because the CBC only changes the likelihood ratio of like appendicitis by a little bit. Um, Sometimes, though, we're just gathering data for other we people. We get them, exactly. Yeah. And, like, I don't have any problems ordering those tests. I right. just want people to realize that, you know, you're not doing it to aid yourself in the diagnosis. Exactly. You should be do- making your diagnosis by other things. Exactly. So um, going back to, like, Chem 7, your serum electrolytes, they're also not that helpful because even with protracted vomiting and diarrhea, they're mm-hmm. only abnormal in less than 1%. Mm-hmm. So talking about likelihood ratio right mm-hmm. BUN is elevated in GI bleeding but hey I hope you made that diagnosis by history and physical not by BUN I've seen it made by <laughs> BUN only in uh, no. someone that had a finger and a patient that had a rectum but that's okay <laughs> um, you know obviously serum creatinine indicates renal dysfunction right um, you know helpful very helpful so, um, especially when you're going to progress to the CAT scan exactly right so blood glucose and iron gap and serum ketones together, like they should pretty like much give you like, yeah, that is DKA, mm-hmm. you know, and that, as we said, could present mm-hmm. as an abdominal pain. So liver enzymes, quarks, you know, they they have very limited helpfulness. Maybe like, you know, if you're trying to do invasive procedures, like it's helpful to know what their coags okay. are or platelets, like right. they're like five. Right, right, you know? right. Um, serum lipase is very helpful if you're entertaining pancreatitis diagnosis. And um, I just should mention that serum lipase is much more specific. There is no point of getting amylase yeah, at this point. should be over that by now, yep. All right, serum lactate, yes, it's an indicator of like something horrible going on. It is elevated mesenteric ischemia, but it's pretty late in the disease process, so you know it can't really be relied upon. Okay. So ancillary testing so far breaking down into urine, serum testing. What's the last piece? Imaging? Imaging. Yep. Flat plate. Flat plate has limited usefulness. Obstruction series is a little more helpful. Okay. So generally you get it when you are considering radiopaque foreign body. You know, and when you're thinking about bowel obstruction, you should get obstruction series. Sure. The upright chest X-ray is actually much more helpful in detecting free air in patients with perforated ulcers, but Got again, it. cannot be relied upon. I think it's positive with bystanders in like 15 percent mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. Only. So CT, CT of abdomen and pelvis actually has become the imaging modality yep. for abdominal pain. And it does give you a lot of, lot of information about inter and extra peritoneal structures and has a very high degree of accuracy. Um, the only thing you have to remember, like if you are evaluating a patient for biliary disease or for OBGYN stuff, that's not helpful. Ultrasound is much more helpful. Okay, so, so that's helpful to a student who's sort of going through this, right? So as long as your differential includes a non-biliary, um, non-genital, uh, you know, reproductive organ mm-hmm. issue, then pretty much you're headed towards a CT. Exactly. Okay. And that, again, shows you the usefulness of pelvic exam because pelvic exam will already kind of separate them from you, whether it is a pelvic stuff or abdominal. So, you know, okay. then you kind of know which imaging modality. With or without contrast, both? 
Well, depends. it depends. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to make it a CT talk. Well, but so let's, yeah. um, uh, we have a colicky patient. It's a unilateral colic. It radiates to the, the groin. The groin. <laughs> you know, that CT. UA shows blood. UA shows blood. That CT right. is probably yes. non-contrast. So that's a non-con. Like, yeah, if you're looking for any kind of infections, you know, evaluating hernias, um, you know, then, you know, you need IV contrast. There's mm -hmm. a huge debate about PO contrast, whether it is mm -hmm. um, useful or not. So more and more studies show that, you know, it's not that helpful, especially like if your yes. CT has a very high resolution. Also, if the patient has a high BMI. Exactly. Uh, then, then the intra-abdominal fat does a lot of the uh, uh, contrast for you. Exactly. So, okay, good. So, and then again, like since we mentioned the ultrasound, you know, um, transabdominal and transvaginal ultrasound, extremely helpful. And you can diagnose a lot of conditions very quickly, like IUP, the presence of it, or right, the right. absence of right, such. Right, right, right. Right, measurements <laughs> of cross-sectional aorta to exclude AAA, detection of free fluid. Right. Also, when we look at the liver and the gallbladder, it's very helpful to pick up the stones and the cholecystitis, also helpful in picking up ascites, hydronephrosis, mm -hmm. IBC distension or mm -hmm. collapse, so that you get the volume status. Mm -hmm. So these are the things that are testing. Perfect. Now, the uh, differential diagnosis. So I've, I've done my history, done my physical, I've put together some tests, but I really should be putting together those tests sort of like we already talked about, based on my differential diagnosis. What, how does the differential diagnosis sort of modify what we just talked about from the, from the, the, the uh, menu of tests we can get? Right, so your differential diagnosis, you know, should always in include the life-threatening conditions that we talked about, but also um, non-life-threatening conditions. So um, you should um, perform the focused H&P. This is not the time when you can talk about, like, you know, do you have access to firearms? Like, what's your, you know. <laughs> Smoking so, cessation, exactly. bad time, triple A. So <laughs> when you have those differentials in mind, then your history kind of becomes focused because you asking questions to include or exclude those life-threatening conditions. Mm. So that's why, you know, when you approach the abdominal pain, having this differential in mind is just a must. Mm -hmm. um, then, of course, like patients, uh, they should be in the room with adequate monitoring and resuscitation tools readily available. You know, yeah, hallway patients say, yes, we do have that. But, you know, right. if you are worried about the patient that needs to be in the room, hooked up to the monitor, you know, IV access and all that stuff. Um, obviously, you know, you need to um, do appropriate diagnostic studies the, uh, after stabilization. Okay. So this is not like, you know, oh, I'm not sure what's going on, the patient is crashing, let's get him to CT. No, right, right, you right, know, right. that's not gonna happen. So, and that is particularly important, again, in elderly and in pregnant. Um, as I said, women of reproductive age, they should get a pregnancy test as they walk in. Right. And again, like any pregnant female with abdominal pain has ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise. Like and that's a great example of how a more experienced EM physician or resident will use the epidemiology and the probability of exactly. the cause to begin focusing and seemingly skipping 
social history, past medical history, what exactly. have you. Exactly. Right? So 35-year-old female collapses in the supermarket and has abdominal pain. We're putting the ultrasound on when she arrives as the IV goes in, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and usually, usually, the approach to differential diagnosis of abdominal pain is based on the location of maximum tenderness. Mm. And again, it's much more of like a somatic, you know, right. type of pain. But like that's where you basically thinking, like, you know, if you have a pain in the right upper quadrant, you know, like that's probably where the money is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and, and if the patient can't, determine where exactly that points you to other causes maybe not so geographic right exactly yeah so and then you always have to accept the fact that about half of your abdominal patients um work workups in the ed will have no conclusive diagnosis oh, that's right because a lot of the conditions a lot of the things that cause abdominal pain do not get diagnosed on that menu of tests, right? Exactly. So gastritis, acid reflux, GERD, peptic ulcer disease. Gas. Gas. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> uh, you know, bowel dysfunction of, of some sort, physiologic or otherwise. They don't, they don't show up well on tests. And um, you need to then, I think, maybe go back when you've got oh, all those yeah. negative I tests. I going to talk about that. Take yeah. another crack at maybe what the cause is and maybe do some empiric management. Yep, empiric management, yeah, that's a good one. So main therapeutic goals are resuscitation, mitigation of symptoms, okay. and expedious diagnosis, okay. if possible. Right. You know, um, there is no evidence to uh, withhold pain meds. Like right, that has course. been like a discussion. It actually was an axiom before that, you know, don't give pain meds, otherwise the surgical consultant would not be able to accurately assess the pain. Right. And that has been shown like that's not true. Well, that's shown not only not to be not true, but 100% diametrically exactly. opposite the exactly a little analgesia improves the exam exactly because the patient actually is able to give you the belly for the right, exam right 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 <laughs> so um then of course anti-emetics like sure. they have a huge role because when the patient is puking like there is no good history you can get mm. there is no good exam you can right perform. of course yeah you know so control that and then, like, you know, antibiotics, they have a huge role. So know, you know, your broad-spectrum antibiotics that covers belly pathology. Yes. Because if you have suspected or confirmed infection, that, you know, know what's in your arsenal. All right. Well, every attending starts their thought process when they walk in a room with disposition. Disposition. <laughs> yes, that's everyone's favorite right so students need to think that way too exactly right. and that's one of the things that's probably different for the students like than other rotations sure. like internal medicine or whatever other rotations so right. whenever they come to the ER, dispo should be like their main goal yep number Democal one cert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 40 percent of patients will receive the diagnosis of non-specific abdominal pain so it's very difficult. Yes. So what and, are the types of And that of conversation can be difficult, Yeah, too. exactly. Right. Exactly. And so that's where you have to explain, you know, this is what we were looking for emergencies. We weren't looking for, Yeah, know. and generally, you know, the, the patients handle it well, generally. Yeah. So what are the dispositions that are available to you? Surgical consultation. Non-surgical cons consultation. 
Then you can admit the patient for observation or symptoms control. So even if you don't have a definitive diagnosis, but the patient looks crappy, has horrible vital signs, just not in a good shape, sure, yeah. you can always admit for observation and symptom control, right. like intractable vomiting, intractable sure. pain. Right. You know, then you can admit for serial abdominal exams, and that's actually surgery does that more often. Right. You know, like mm-hmm. again, they don't know what's going on, but serial abdominal exam. Mm-hmm. Then you can discharge the patient with close follow-up. And before discharging that patient, and especially with a diagnosis of non-specific right. abdominal pain, there are several conditions that must okay. be met and documented on the chart. All it's right. very important. Okay. So your workup should exclude potentially life-threatening conditions. Sounds okay. like an oxymoron, right? Right, right. But, you know, sometimes this is what you do. The patient comes with abdominal pain, and all you do is excluding life-threatening conditions. Right. And you have to remember, like, that's that's what you're doing. Exactly. You know, it's, it's always nice to give them the diagnosis. Right, which is what we try to do. But many times exactly. we have to say, look, you have st- we have only begun the journey to start to figure out what's causing your pain. Exactly. So the other condition that must be met is discharge vital signs must be normal. Okay. That's my personal pet peeve. And sometimes, like, they become normal, but if it's not documented, you will be held liable. Okay. <laughs> you know, if the patient showed up Check in pain, least, right, right? <laughs> with a heart rate of 130, and yeah. then it's never been rechecked, That's... and you discharge them, like, even though the patient looked great, you know, you are setting yourself right, up. Right, right. For... We don't want to see that. Yeah then symptoms must be controlled. So if they came with pain, vomiting, you know, all that stuff, that needs to be controlled. Otherwise, you can't discharge them. Okay. Then patients must be able to tolerate POs. If they cannot eat or drink, they are likely to deteriorate at home. Mm. So you can't discharge them. So um, one thing I will often say, though, is that it is um, legitimate not to have to do a trial of PO every single time. If someone is, if someone has stopped vomiting, their pain is better, their vital signs have improved, we don't have to start force-feeding them to see if they can take PO. A couple of sips of ginger ale. <laughs> and, <I don't> know. <laughs> My mother always made me drink ginger ale when I was ill. <laughs> really? Is that why we have it? Is that why we have nothing but ginger ale here at the I hospital? I don't know. I come from a different country. We never had ginger ale. <laughs> it's so good for you. All right, so should be able to tolerate PO according to uh, uh, the uh, Rosen textbook. Yes. Clear and DCI. Yeah, mm. clear discharge instructions should mm. be given. Okay. And they must contain what to do for the relief of symptoms. Okay. Like avoiding certain foods or taking appropriate medications, you know, under what circumstances and with whom to seek a follow-up care, oh, whether yeah. it is Huge. a GI, yeah. a surgeon, a right. family practitioner. And also what to look for and under what circumstances to return to the ED. That's a must. So you always have to give the patients kind of like a roadmap. You know, if that's what's going to start happening to mm. you, just come right back. Mm. And that's a huge protection for the ED physicians mm-hmm. as well. And that must be clearly documented. And usually it should be done as a free text, not like a pre-done thing or 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 at least brought to you know sort of emphasized in some way shape or form underline it or do something on there to make sure the patients understand that um wow so i'm just thinking back on this what we just went over no wonder medical students get blown away when they get started in the emergency medicine but remember like if you just take it 
you know, with the common sense and with like the right approach, Break it's it not down. that bad. Yep. Yeah. Break it down and exactly. use these pointers. Review this podcast. Review the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you'll be ready to go with, um, with your rotation in emergency medicine. Only 30 yeah. some more cardinal presentations to go. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> One at a time, right? One at a time. All right. So I think that was like the toughest one, probably. One of the toughest chief complaints. Oh, no question about it. Yeah. No question about it. Abdominal pain is always a challenge. There's no question. Yep. Well, thank you, Karima. It's been an awesome podcast. Thank and, you. It's uh, been such a pleasure. Okay, great. And we will uh, pick another topic and get back soon. Soon. All right. Very Bye. Good. Bye.